Good morning, Calvary family. Uh, I will invite you to stand if you are able as I read from God's holy word, Acts chapter 15 this morning. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of of Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, 
unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. So, when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with him John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Great is our God and greatly to be praised. Again, with all thanksgiving to Pastor Gerald, the shepherd who will give an account before Christ for all of our souls, and to the elders who serve kindly with him. And to all of you, it is good to be in the land of the living and gathered with the saints of God today. <clears throat> Thank you, worship team, for leading us this day to worship our great God. And thank you also, tech team, for your many gifts. And we honor you as part of our body, though often you are so overlooked. Let us look to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Father, for the many great things that you are doing around Calvary, for the report of what you have done among our middle schoolers and high schoolers this summer. Thank you for all those who participated and facilitated Link. Use it to bless and deepen our congregation and love for you and one another. Give grace to the parents and students and teachers as we start new school years. God, fill us with the knowledge of your will. Fill Pastor Gerald with strength and wisdom as his sabbatical draws to a close. Thank you for giving him this time of rest for our sake. Bless 
our missions partners with power and give them open doors today for the gospel. May many in the nations hear today through those you have called to serve with us. Fill our local leaders with wisdom concerning the pandemic. God, in your mercy, may you bring this pandemic to an end soon. Now bless us to be a people who do what is pleasing in your sight and who look like Christ. Speak to us today from the word of God and transform us into the likeness of his image. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Strong disagreements. They happen. We all have experienced them. We have seen the fights that destroy families, churches, and the closest of friendships. An issue comes up over which we cannot and sometimes we should not bend. Soon, the calls to lawyers begin. Someone threatens to leave. We throw irrevocable epithets. Shouting matches increase in frequency and in volume. We point fingers, toss rings, grab keys so that one can escape in the car or so that that same person can be locked out of the house. Hearts are broken and filled with anger. The innocent are left confused and many tears are shed. Handled this way, no disagreement helps any child, colleague, marriage, or parishioner. Instead, it often hurts people for a very long period of time and severs ties that once almost inseparably banded peers, pillows, and pews. Disagreements and debates do not have to be destructive. They can improve, edify, and strengthen, especially where disputes over doctrine and methods within the church are concerned. But whether a disagreement destroys or strengthens always depends upon the proper use of grace. In Acts 15, we are halfway through the narrative of the church, taking the gospel to the ends of the world through the power of the Holy Spirit as witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. The believers have preached the death of Christ in every city and presented him as the Jewish Messiah and rejected Lord. In the last few chapters, the believers have prayed and seen the apostles take the message of Jesus' resurrection from the dead hundreds of miles over seas and mountains to Caesarea, Galatia, and back to Antioch. They have witnessed lives spared miraculously from execution and mob justice through those same prayers. Propelled as the believers pray, the gospel message heads all over the world through every challenge to reach both Jews and Gentiles, people of all nations in need of forgiveness through Christ. But the journey halts in this chapter. In chapter 15, there is no praying. There is no proclamation of the gospel to the lost. There is a pause in the action, a pause that determines what message will go to the ends of the earth. This passage is the watershed passage in the book of Acts. Its ramifications are more significant than the conversion of Saul and the salvation of Cornelius. This passage is the first great debate in the church. It decides 
whether you and I as Gentiles have to be circumcised in order to know God, whether we need to bring sheep to a priest in order to experience forgiveness, whether we need to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year for a festival to stay in God's covenant, and whether or not we get to wear 100% cotton and silk only rather than 65% polyester blend clothing in order to keep our salvation. A disagreement arises in the church over the place of the law in the salvation of the Gentiles. The issue is twofold. First, the disagreement begins with the question, do the Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be saved? Some Jewish believers from Judea start pushing this message on the believers in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with these men, Luke says. They did not let this teaching circulate without trying to confront it. It becomes such a serious issue that they are sent to the apostles and elders of the churches in Jerusalem to resolve the matter. As they pass through the cities on the way to Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul tell believers in every city what God did among the Gentiles. You remember what happened. Sergius Paulus believed some disciples were made along the way such that they were there when Paul was stoned. When Jews rejected the message of the gospel, they turned to the Gentiles and the Gentiles believed with joy. In all of this, no circumcision was needed or prescribed for the salvation of the Gentiles. As they tell people this message along the way, all the believers rejoice and accept that God saves on the basis of belief and not of works. That is, he saves by grace. It's the only way that people are saved. This knocks the teeth out of the message about the need for circumcision when it comes to our justification. Here is what Luke teaches about the role of grace in our church disputes. One, it is not grace to avoid debate to defend the gospel. It is grace to speak of the great working of God. It's not grace to avoid debate to defend the gospel. It is grace to speak of the great working of God. Now let me pause a second to explain what I mean by grace in the development of Luke's narrative. Grace involves offering undeserved kindness while maintaining one's high righteous standards joyously so that people can reach the standard obedience calling, or righteous goal by your strength where it is not possible to reach it in their own. In Acts 13 and 14, Paul and Barnabas cannot offer witness to the Gentiles in new lands on their own. Neither can they convince Jews that Jesus is the Messiah, open the eyes of Gentiles to the faith, or gather a group of believers and elders to become a church. 
But Luke summarizes their completed mission in Acts 14, 26 by saying, and from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. The Lord gave Barnabas and Paul undeserved kindness to proclaim Christ, survive stoning, gather disciples of Jews and Gentiles, and appoint elders. God's power accomplished the work in and through them to meet a calling and obedience that they could not do on their own. No doubt those experiences and many others, along with direct revelation from the Lord, and the Holy Spirit opening Paul's understanding of the Old Testament, all contributed to Paul's emphasis on grace throughout his epistles, including his saying in 1 Corinthians 15.10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul definitely understood grace. With that understanding, it is right for him to stand his ground against the brothers attempting to add the act of circumcision to how one comes to Jesus for salvation. It would not be grace for Paul to say, oh, they're just a little confused. That is not a minor confusion even though it's only one issue. That is enough confusion to miss the kingdom of God and to land in hell forever. Paul must debate here, least the gospel of salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, by Christ alone be lost. What Paul and Barnabas do that is wise and full of grace is to explain how God worked in the lives of those without the Mosaic law. Not one of the Gentiles was circumcised as a response to the gospel Paul and Barnabas preached. The Gentiles received the Spirit of God by faith apart from works in the same manner the Jews did in Acts 1 through 9. Both Jewish and Gentile believers hear that God is working by giving the kindness to empower people to come to faith. It is right for Paul and Barnabas to hold to the truth of the gospel and explain it to fellow believers. They allow the telling of the story of grace to win the first part of the debate for them. God is the great giver of our salvation, and he does it by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross alone, offering it to us by grace. Second, it is not grace to budge on sound doctrine. When they arrive in Jerusalem, the debate on circumcision comes up again, and this time it is complemented by an emphasis on more works of the law of Moses. There are some who want more commands and prohibitions from Exodus through Deuteronomy, 
to complement the narrative of circumcision as a sign of the covenant to Abraham. It seems that the Christian Pharisees are thinking that if they can't get Gentiles to follow the law on the front end with circumcision, they will get them on the back end with both circumcision and the keeping of the law of Moses as a means of sanctification and assurance. This is the second issue. In order to maintain salvation, the Gentiles must keep the law say the Christian members of the Pharisee party. Like the first concern on justification, the church will not stand for such nonsense on the second issue of sanctification and assurance. Peter, apostle to the Jews, who first opened the door to the Gentiles, stands and brings in the sovereign working of God to debate with three short points. One, God chose Peter to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Two, the Gentiles received the Spirit, as did the Jewish believers upon belief. Three, God makes no distinction between the method of salvation to the Jews and the method of salvation to the Gentiles. The Jews do not have a leg up on salvation because they keep the customs of the law. And the Gentiles do not need to keep the law to be rescued from their sins. This is Peter's conclusion. Do not test God by placing the unbearable yoke of the law on the Gentiles. When Peter raises the concern of putting God to the test, one should think of Israel botching the job to go conquer the promised land at Kadesh Barnea in Numbers 13 and 14 when the 10 spies brought back a bad report. Their bad report suggested that God could not do as he promised and would let the Israelites perish in the wilderness. One should think also of the ancient Israelites demanding water at Meribah and Massah in Exodus 17 and Numbers 20. In Psalm 95, the Lord says that these three incidents were testing his faithfulness toward them and so provoked him that the generation that doubted him wandered around for 40 years, never seeing the promised land. They all died in the wilderness for testing God. For Peter to add the law as a yoke for the Gentiles is to question God's faithfulness to save according to the gospel message. It is to suggest that God cannot save through Christ alone, but needs our help that he will leave us to perish in sin if we don't demand more than what he has shown himself faithful to do. Peter says, do not test God in this way. As to the yoking of the Gentiles, trying to keep the 613 commandments and prohibitions perfectly was too much for Jewish people to bear, even though they had had the law almost since their inception as a nation. If they could not keep the law, there is no way that the Gentiles could begin to pull the plow of the law, even if you and I could get all of the laws on leprosy right. 
the other laws on picking up sticks, parapets on rooftops, what we can sow and not sow in our fields, and sacrifices would catch up to us eventually. Imagine if to be saved, you had to wear an ox yoke around your neck while running a 5K race, swim across Lake Michigan while wearing ankle weights, and bike the prairie path while towing an ice cream truck with flat tires. You would say, forget salvation. It's way too hard for me to do. Yet, many belief systems add measures of works to salvation. And we often do it to ourselves. We might not put baptism, Eucharist, confirmation, penance, or other humanitarian works in front of our salvation, but we will add salvation by our own standards to sanctification by thinking such things as, if he was really a believer, he would eat a better diet and take care of his temple. I'm not referring to anybody you know. If she was really a believer, she would keep a neater house. She would groom herself better and take care of her hair. He would be less stingy toward his wife. They would have better acting children. She would know more scripture by now and be able to get over the pains from her past. They would take better care of their aging parents. Hey, don't put that kind of yoke on our sanctification. This is not necessary on this side of salvation any more than christening is needed on the front side of salvation. Of course, this discussion raises the place of the moral law in salvation. But keeping the moral law never intends to take away the scandal of the cross. If you say that Jesus starts salvation, but Moses completes it, you have just taken away the scandalous nature of what Christ has done for us. Christ does not take someone's work and improve upon them. Christ offers absolute grace to complete sinners whose works are totally depraved and offer utterly nothing to God. Christ does it all for us from start to finish in our salvation. We cannot budge on saying this. Budging on this is not grace. For the alternative is that people must rely on absolutely futile efforts to please an absolutely holy God. And that always fails Absolutely. James, leader of the Jerusalem church, using Peter's Aramaic name, Simeon or Simon, as he speaks to the council, will stand up and say that Peter's testimony agrees with the prophet Amos, who foretold that the Gentiles would be welcomed by God. That is, that the Old Testament scriptures saw the welcoming of the Gentiles without the Gentiles keeping the Old Testament law. But James will add four things for the Gentiles to do in order for the Gentiles to be considerate of their Jewish brothers' long-held customs. So while it is not grace to budge on doctrine, including the doctrine of salvation, it is grace 
to offer stipulations for believers to enjoy fellowship together. Grace is for both initial salvation and ongoing fellowship. How can the Jewish believers with their moral practices coming from Jewish law and their Jewish identity be in the same church with these Gentiles? How can they sit with people who come into the church through faith apart from works when such works also distinguish God's people as holy and peculiar? How can the Jewish believers possibly allow the Gentiles to continue with them without addressing the issues of Gentile vices and the accepted ethical practices of the Jews? Or as James Pohill says in his Acts commentary, if the Gentiles were not being required to observe the Jewish ritual laws, how would Jewish Christians who maintained strict Torah observance be able to fellowship with them without running the risk of being ritually defiled themselves? James and the council's answer is to give standards that allow Gentiles and Jews to be together without denying the gospel of justification and sanctification by grace. Limiting the stipulations to dietary observations and a code against sexual immorality could do away with the remaining Jewish practices altogether in the church. But that was not the goal of the council. They are not trying to erase Judaism from Jewish believers. The Jewish people could keep their customs as cherished practices from Judaism, but not as planks in a ladder of salvation. The reading of the Jewish law weekly in the synagogues would ensure that Jewish identity would not be lost when Jews came to Jesus and joined in fellowship with the Gentiles. The Gentiles did not have cherished Jewish practices because they were Gentile believers, but they had to incorporate these four stipulations graciously so that they could be one church with their Jewish sisters, and brothers. Coming to Christ by faith recognizes that salvation is a work of God alone. But coming to Christ without works does not mean that there will not be a change in lifestyle. There is a change in lifestyle because Jesus is Lord of the life of the believer. Those who want to claim that no change is needed because faith is all there is have the wrong message of the gospel. Faith demands a life change. Faith demands that we change our lives. Faith demands that Jesus be Lord over our entire lives. Those who have come to faith in Jesus should not be comfortable with those claiming faith but having no change in character and morality. It is a gracious thing to ask all who claim to follow Christ to have moral behavior common to those following the teachings of Jesus Christ. Three, 
It is grace to give someone who failed another chance. It is equally grace to disagree and separate peacefully on disagreements about optional ministry methods. Paul and Barnabas want to make sure those they have seen come to faith and live under elders are continuing in their new lives. They want Gentile lands to become launching pads to many ports of call for the message of the good news of the death of Jesus for sin. But Barnabas wants to take with them his cousin, John Mark, who previously departed Paul and Barnabas when they were in the Galatian regions in Acts 13. And we're not exactly sure what Paul and Barnabas said, but at some point, they probably said something like this to one another. If you want John Mark to come, don't want John Mark to come, then I can take him and go do the work with him. Or, if you insist that John Mark rejoin the mission of the gospel, you take him without me. I will grab Silas and we will go preach the gospel elsewhere. Barnabas, our Cyprusian Levite believer, ever being the encourager that he is, wants to give Mark a second chance at the work of the gospel. John Mark might not have had the stomach or maturity for what he had encountered previously. Barnabas wants to make a way for him to measure up. Barnabas wants to give him another try. That is grace. What happens next is something you and I never could have imagined in our first reading of the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas will split over the issue of taking John Mark with them. This is the Paul and Barnabas mentioned six times before these verses together in Acts 15. You can go through with a highlighter and see it. This is Paul and Barnabas who together debated the issue of justification without circumcision and won the debate by sharing the message of grace. This is Paul disagreeing with the Barnabas who made it possible for believers in Jerusalem to welcome the former murderer of believers into fellowship. This is the Paul who Barnabas traced across the sea to get and bring to Antioch when he needed to strengthen the teaching in the church's new ministry base. This is the Paul and Barnabas team of whom the Spirit spoke to the leaders in Antioch while Paul and Barnabas were fasting and praying with these leaders and said, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them to do. This is that Barnabas and Paul who were sent to Galatian regions to preach the gospel for the first time. Barnabas and Paul have carried benevolence to Jerusalem together, avoided an attempt at stoning together, been worshipped as Zeus and Hermes together, been run out of cities by Jewish opposition together. They have gone back to places where Paul was stoned, encouraged believers in those churches, and appointed elders in those churches together. So this breakup it's not like a scripted movie breakup, like Steve Rogers and Tony Stark breaking up in the Marvel Universe. 
Neither is it some animated cartoon breakup like Snoopy not being able to get back home to Charlie Brown. This is real. The people putting the gospel on Gentile soil first, having traveled hundreds of miles together through thick and through thin, are going their separate ways in a dispute over the role of one additional servant in the gospel work. This is about 14 years of friendship and joint service being severed at this point. And if that's hard to believe, it is even harder to believe that either Paul or Barnabas sinned in their decisions. And that's because they didn't. Taking or leaving John Mark is not a matter of following the law or obeying the gospel. It is a matter of personal preference. Barnabas preferred to give John Mark another chance. Paul preferred not to take a risk at a disruption to the gospel ministry by this immature or unfaithful companion coming along. Now, I want to be careful here, but I also want to be candid. There are ways to get what this passage is teaching wrong in our practice. We can raise our preferences to the level of righteous commands that everyone must accept. Then when people do not accept them, we can get into unnecessary disputes. Or, unlike Paul and Barnabas, we can disagree in a manner that destroys the work of the gospel rather than expanding it. The church commends Paul again to the grace of God, and he goes forth to plant more churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Corinth, and he builds up believers in many other cities. Barnabas, although never mentioned again in the book of Acts, seems to influence the work of the gospel in Corinth since Paul mentions him when speaking of those who make their living by the work of the gospel. And it seems that Barnabas helped Mark to grow in the faith and in faithfulness, for later Paul will find John Mark useful to the work he is doing in the churches And we know that Mark will later be the writer of the gospel account bearing his name. Paul and Barnabas' manner of separation does not stop the work of the gospel. So, back to being candid and careful. Whenever preachers start talking about disagreements, unity, or money in the pulpit, Antennae of suspicion go up all over the church. Are we having problems? Are we short on money? What is going on? What's wrong? Why is he talking about unity from the pulpit or disagreements? Well, the truth is, Nothing is wrong here at Calvary. We are preaching through Acts in a series on the healing of the nations, and disagreements is the concern of Acts chapter 15. This is a good time to go through this passage, just like last week was a good time to talk about the writings of Ovid when Pastor Gerald didn't have the opportunity to discuss classics. Because we are not in major controversies right now or any disputes in our church. We can get ahead of anything down the road and think about the impact 
of the gospel upon our potential disputes while everything is good and peaceful. If and when a major dispute comes to our doorstep, as it has in a past dimension before my time here, ah, such bliss the last six years. If and when a major dispute comes to our doorstep, can we please seek to settle things in a manner that will expand the work of the gospel rather than tear it down? I say this as one who watches disputes between intelligent Christian adults and between young adults studying for the ministry at my other Christian place of employment. There and in previous places of service, without being exempt myself, I have watched us harm one another and leave that bitter taste of unnecessary, graceless discord in the mouths of many. I also say this as one who has witnessed church disagreements destroy families that were being strengthened, broken marriages that were mending, skeptical people who were just again becoming comfortable with the very idea of trusting church people. We lose sight of the destructive dangers of disputes when we are in the midst of arguing for our personal preferences, our values, and our likings. Only in hindsight do we then see that things could have been handled another way. But we have an opportunity right now during peacetime to decide that if we ever do come to a debate, even if it's 15 years down the road, we will, one, set aside time for cooler heads to prevail, two, invite in a third party of peacemakers, and three, step back and look at the whole of the church's ministry rather than that one thing over which we might be disputing. We have opportunity to think about the work of our mission partners, of our youth who are learning from adults who are claiming to follow Christ as they dispute with one another, and of outsiders who are watching to see if our Christ could really be real. And I hope you will take the same precautions on your disputes in your home and think about what family fighting and or breakups do long-term to the members of a household. Do not think of the peace for yourself alone. Do not just think about winning the arguments and proving that you are right. You won't even remember that argument in a few years anyway. I can't remember what Pam and I argued about last year, let alone two years ago, 10 years ago, or 30 years ago when we first started in our marriage. Those arguments we just need to put down because we won't remember them and they don't matter that much. Go cool off. Get some third-party, objective, trained help and think of the bigger picture of what you and your family could be if you strive toward happiness together. I am not staying, stay in an abusive situation. No more than I would be saying stay at a place where they deny sound doctrine. Instead, I am challenging the abuser to stop being proud and to go get the help that everyone else can see that you need. You are destroying yourself. Your children are going to hate you later, and you are not thinking about standing before God the judge at all. If you are claiming to be a Christian, then act 
like a Christian and say to God that you are helpless to save yourself and you need his grace. The famous and oft-quoted 17th century German Lutheran dictum is appropriate here. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. If something is essential like the message of the gospel, we must be united over this without dispute. We can't budge on historical Christianity and our doctrinal statements, even though we can amend the language and correct previous error. Yet even our doctrinal stances must be shaped by loving language and attitudes and not that neo-reformed practice of trying to bury people who question the five solas or complementarianism and stomp them into the ground. If it is about the time of services, what is offered in the children's ministry, the food we serve at our meals together or something of the like, we need to allow for freedom or change while being shaped by the disposition of love. No targeted or specialized ministry to students, children, college students, men, women, seniors, differently abled, or minority residents is mandated by scripture, historical confessions, or our doctrinal statements. Let me say that again. No targeted or specialized ministry to students, children, college students, men, women, seniors, differently abled, or minority residents is mandated by scripture, historical confessions, or our doctrinal statements, or even by some of the best practices. Everything outside of the ordinary means of grace, biblical church governance, evangelism, missions, and discipleship, and formative and corrective Christian practices are preferences and privileges. We don't have to have gluten-free or low-carb options for food or other ministry options, but it is loving and wise to do so. We can't demand that we have these things, but we should not break up fellowship over these things. We should be considering offering things when our resources allow us to do so. All of that would be grace. Barnabas exercises grace toward Mark and Paul. Apparently, the church thinks Paul is operating in grace in his actions toward Barnabas. They do not rebuke Paul for splitting with Barnabas, but commend him and Silas to the grace of God so that in all things, love prevails. And that really is the issue of grace. We have a great God who has given his son so that love will prevail even where we have failed at truth and at the law. Grace is what brought the gospel to us. Grace is what created Calvary Memorial Church. Grace will keep Calvary Memorial Church and all its members. Grace is how we find strength to raise our children. Grace is what we and others experience when we look past faults and forgive people's sins. Grace is why we don't budge on doctrine, but find every possible means to express love toward one another. Grace sees us through disputes without disaster. And grace guards the message of our salvation.
May God, in his kindness, make us a people full of grace. Father, we bless you for all of your great working from start to finish, beginning to end. The grace that will be ours when Christ is fully revealed, our blessed hope. Thank you for the grace that gives us peaceful unity of love as a congregation. May that grace be greater to us for many lengths of days. Thank you for the grace that has allowed us to stand firm in sound doctrine. Continue to complement that grace with us being full of love and the power of the Spirit in every way. Right now, God, give grace to a family that needs to handle a dispute or disputing another way by relying on all of your resources in Christ. Thank you for the grace that has come to us through the Son. We bless and honor your great name today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.